Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. Today, I'm privileged to have Jeff Moyer, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Rodale Institute. His expertise includes organic crop production systems with a focus on weed management, cover crops, crop rotations, equipment modification, and use and facilities design. Jeff is perhaps most well known for conceptualizing and popularizing the no-till roller crimper for use in organic agriculture. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's a real pleasure to be here. So talk to me, how did you get into agriculture? Oh, well, uh, my journey to agriculture started when I was young. Uh, I grew up on a, you know, it really wasn't a farm. We had about 30 acres and I think it was really um, designed to keep my brothers and I out of jail. You know, there was a lot (laughs) A lot of work, a lot of work. My father uh, and mother never made a living off of off of the land, but we always had. Uh, there was five kids, so we raised we raised food. We had big gardens. We had uh, ducks and chickens and goats and all kinds of animals that, that we raised, and uh, we had a lot of woodland. So we we cut firewood, and it, uh-huh. it was that kind of a place. Uh, but it really instilled in me a real love for for the land and the outdoors. And so when I got out of uh, high school, I went off to college uh, to become a, I was a forestry major, uh-huh. wanted to work in forestry. I, as, again, as a kid on that small place at home, I really enjoyed being in the, in the forest and in the woods. So forestry made sense to me. Uh, when I got out of school, the only work I could find was uh, in the West, in Colorado. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was in the East here in Pennsylvania, and she had no inclination to move to Colorado, and I had no inclination to give up on her. We've been married for over 40 years now, so it worked out just fine. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. But I then um, sort of took that that information, that desire to stay in agriculture, it coupled that with the back to the land movement of the mid-1970s. My wife and I bought a small piece of land, which we still own, and we build a house on it, which we still live in. And the farm's grown quite a bit now under my son's management. And it's a certified organic dairy operation. And we, uh, I got a job at Rodale Institute. And that started way back in 1976. And I've been here ever since. And so progressed from being involved with the farm team to farm management to farm director to executive director to now CEO over that 45 yeah. year 45 year period. Wow. And, and Rodale has really grown or the Institute has really grown over that time period too. It has, it's grown, uh, grown quite a bit. Uh, we are a, uh, we now operate in eight locations uh, across the country. If you count oh, wow. our virtual learning uh, website uh, activities, uh, but seven physical plants, we've got a research facility in California. We've got one in Georgia. We've got one in Iowa. Yeah, we've grown quite a bit. Uh, we have a team of about 10 PhD scientists and a complement of technicians that work with them doing actual research uh, on those locations and on the ground here at our main headquarters in, um, in Pennsylvania. And uh, we have a, a pretty dynamic education and outreach team as well. So we're, we're all over the place doing lots of things. And that's really exciting for us, trying to have impact on transitioning more and more farmland from conventional to organic or regenerative organic. 
Absolutely. Okay. So something you said right there, I want to dive into because when the whole organic was getting watered down, you came out with, I think what you call regenerative organic. Talk to us about that. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah. And we would never have said that the organic uh, standard was being watered down. What we did was not necessarily a knee jerk reaction to anything that the USDA was doing or wasn't doing in our opinion. We were concerned from the very beginning when when and we worked hard uh, here at Rodale Institute to ensure that the USDA and the federal government did take on the word organic because we wanted to grow the industry rapidly. But mm-hmm. we knew uh, from the, from the very be- first conversations that with with the um, federal government that in order to do that, where there were things we were going to have to give up, and we yeah. were concerned about that. So stepping way back into the 1980s, we were concerned with the language that was going to be happening around the word organic. Uh, and so it's a, it's a, it's always a challenge. Do we, uh, do we not move forward with that certification uh, under the USDA or, and try to maintain private control? Or do we want to see the system grow and things grow more rapidly when you sort of release control and let it out there. But when you lose control, things can go in a different way than you think it might. So we, we were looking at this, uh, you know, it, the organic, if you look at the organic word back in the 70s, prior to the federal government taking on the word, there was this whole connotation around continuous improvement. We yeah. talked we talked a lot in the organic community around animal welfare, and we talked a lot about social justice. But all of those pieces were kind of set by the wayside when the USDA took on the word because the, uh, the federal government uh, placed the word under the ag marketing service of yes. the USDA. And of course, the, the marketing service has no language to talk around about social justice. It's just not anywhere on their radar screen. They can't do that. They, yeah. Their hands are tied. And so there was no connotation there. And when you talk to people about certifying the concept of continuous improvement, you know, the certifiers go, well, how do I do that? How do I measure continuous improvement? I, I need numbers and data. And that's how that works. And so we were concerned with that. And so when we had the opportunity and the opportunity uh, to create a standard, we did. And the opportunity arose because we had, uh, the Rodeo Institute had for a very long time uh, not used the word sustainable. Okay. S- sustainable or sustainability were never words that we used very much because they're, it's a relatively weak word. Mm-hmm. If and I've said this many times, and maybe some of your listeners have heard me say it or heard it said before, uh, a, a friend of mine, Greg Bowman, who is a journalist, said to me one time, if somebody asked you how your relationship was with your significant other and you said it's sustainable, would they be happy <laughs> or would they be sad? And so why should our relationship with the soil or with our food system merely be sustainable? Shouldn't it be so much more? And Robert Rodale was an early uh, proponent of the ideas around climate change. And he would say, if, if, if organic is good for the soil and it can make people healthier, it can make the planet healthier. And if you can do that, you're actually regenerating the system. And if you regenerate the soil, you can regenerate a farmer. If you regenerate a farmer, you can regenerate her spirit. If you can regenerate her spirit, you can regenerate the whole community. And Absolutely. everything starts with regenerating the soil health. So he used the word regenerate, regeneration and regenerative. 
Well, if you jump forward uh, about you know 30 or 40 years into the uh, late 2000s, you'll see that marketers were really getting tired of the word sustainable. You can only put new and improved on a package so many times. Yes. And so sustainable really didn't mean anything. And it meant everything, depending yes. on who you were and how you read into it, because there was no certification standard for the word sustainable. And so it meant many different things to many different people. And marketers were looking for another word, and they gravitated towards this word regenerative. Rodale Institute said, wait a minute, uh, that's kind of our word. You know, we, we coined it. Yes. In its relationship to agriculture. And we always married that word to the word organic, because we felt it was it's disingenuous to say that you want to regenerate agricultural systems or regenerate the soil and yet spray pesticides on it. Yes. Uh, you know, like herbicides. Uh, it's a little bit like saying that, you know, you and I want to be professional athletes, but we're chain smokers and we don't want to give up smoking. Yeah. Well, you just can't do that. You can say you're an athlete. So people are saying they're regenerative, but then they do all these non-regenerative things uh, to, the, to the system. And so we were very adamant that we wanted to link that word uh, the words organic and regenerative. And, and in order to do that, we wanted to create a, a standard that built on the, the, the many decades of legacy work that was done by Rodale and, and hundreds and hundreds of other people on the word organic. So we didn't want to give that up uh, because the consumers, uh, uh, the consuming public understands that word and is gravitating toward that. And it has a strong meaning. We just wanted to sort of build on that and say, there's other components that consumers are interested in. So if a a uh, shopper goes to a, a point of purchase for food, whether that's a supermarket, a farm stand, a, a, a restaurant, and they can buy something, a product that is organic, or they can buy one that is, has a social justice label. Well, both those values are important to that person. People tend to, to come to the marketplace with a suite of values, not an individual yes. value. Uh, and then you're, you're going to force them to make a decision or you're going to force the producer, whether it's a farmer or a processor, to have multiple labels on their package. And we talked to one farmer that said, I feel a little bit like a Boy Scout with a sash full of merit badges because I'm, I'm halal, I'm fair trade, I'm, I'm, yes. uh, I'm organic, I'm this, I'm that, I'm, you know, I'm uh, clean water, I'm everything. Can't I find, he said to me, can't I find one label? that says I do it all, sort of keeping with that Boy Scout theme. And, and, and you know, uh, your listeners may understand Boy Scouts better than I do. I was a terrible Boy Scout. They asked me to leave when I was about nine because I was too, dis too disruptive. Yeah. Um, I guess that's why I'm an organic farmer. But if you stay in scouting long enough and work yes. hard enough, you can become an Eagle Scout. Once you're an Eagle Scout, that's the only badge you wear because everybody knows you have to get like, you know, I don't know, 200 merit badges or something in order to qualify for that. So farmer said, can't I just get that Eagle Scout badge that says everything that's important to you as a customer or a consumer? Yes, I do it. I take care of the air. I take care of the water. I take care of the people that work on my farm. I take care of the soil. I, all those things that are valued in the marketplace, I do. And we said, yes, I think consumers deserve that, farmers deserve that, and the planet deserves that. And so we worked very hard to help create the regenerative organic certification. Now, we did that in partnership with some brands. We did that very specifically because we know that while Rodale Institute does have a voice in this space, it is not nearly as big a megaphone as brands have. Brands have very 
serious relationships with their customers and their clients uh, and consumers so that there's a trust there. They've built up that level of trust. We know that if you're marketing a product in, uh, uh, whether it's food or fiber, you have landscape on your label to tell a story. Uh, we don't have that landscape. We have mm-hmm. no access to that landscape. So we wanted to build the relationship with brands who we knew would fall in line with what we're, our thought processes were. And we, we partnered with people like Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's and, and many others uh, to build out this, this certification standard and then be the voice in the marketplace for that. Now, in order to do that, we had to be work in partnership and hand in glove with, in this case, in the United States, the federal government, because they still own the word organic, even if we want to use it in regenerative organic, they still own that word organic. And so we can't do anything that would uh, weaken the standard in organic or or sort of look like an end around that we're, we're sort of trying to avoid dealing with the federal government at the farm level. We can't do that and use the word organic. And we don't want to, and we're not encouraging farmers to do that or consumers to not trust that word. So we love the word organic. We love the word regenerative. We married them together in this standard and are, and are, are moving that forward in partner three-way partnership between nonprofits, for-profits in the marketplace and government agencies. And we think that the three-legged stool makes it very powerful. Our yeah. standard uh, includes, of course, everything that's already encompassed in the word organic. And then we add three additional pillars. We talk very specifically around soil health and about soil health. While the organic standard does mention it, uh, it's really kind of, I don't want to say lip service, but when you can have hydroponic that doesn't even have soil in it, it's disingenuous to say that it's about soil health. And so we have a very strong soil pillar, health pillar. We believe that animal welfare is important to the entire system. And while some of us may consume uh, animal products in our diet or use them in, in our fiber, uh, they still deserve to have a very high quality life while we, we, just because we're going to eat them doesn't mean we can abuse them in the process. Of yes. them. And then it's really hard to say that you're regenerating a system if you're not helping to regenerate the people who are producing that, whether it's the farmer or the farm worker on the farm. Uh, we have to be able to bring them along with it. And that's not just in the United States, but that's a global issue and a global problem. So our standard is a global standard and we do have those three pillars uh, deeply embedded in what we're doing. We created, uh, we tried to create, of course, uh, doors and windows for people to get into the system. So we created three tiers, bronze, silver, and gold. So people can enter at the bronze level. Now, because we firmly believe in the idea of continuous improvement and that you're never good enough, you can't stay at bronze for more than five years. You have to move to silver. Now you can stay at silver because gold, the gold standard is very hard. And quite honestly, once everybody makes the gold standard, we're going to create a platinum standard or a kryptonite standard or something else, because we want to see continuous improvement. Um, you know, and that's one of the problems we have with the organic standard is that it's because it's held by the federal government and there's many good reasons and probably some bad reasons why the government moves very slowly. But I think depending on who's in charge, we're glad for that. Sometimes we wish it would move faster. Other times we're really glad it moves slow. It's the system is the organic standard is not very dynamic. Yes. So it essentially looks today like it did uh, 30 years ago. There are very few standards in the world that don't uh, improve or take advantage to new, of new science, of new technologies as the standard improves, uh, as the world improves around that standard. For example, 
I have, I like, I happen to like old cars and trucks and I have one at the moment, you know, and it has uh, drum brakes and, you know, they're not power brakes. So when you step on the pedal, you're pushing for all your worth and you're hoping it'll stop today. you never could buy a car with drum brakes. Everybody has disc brakes. You barely tap the pedal and boom, that thing stops on a dime. Yeah. Uh, perfect. Great innovation. Um, so the standard for motor vehicles changes every year or every few years. Uh, so the food standard has to be able to adjust to that. And we really think by having this partnership with a nonprofit to hold the uh, standard and the, the standard holder is not Rodale Institute. We helped create a separate nonprofit, the, the Regenerative Organic Alliance. They hold the standard. And because of that, we can be a little more dynamic and help to improve that standard over time as new science becomes available and how we, how we determine how to sequester more carbon. An example would be, you know, the roller crimper that maybe we'll mm -hmm. talk about a little bit later, which is a, a cover crop management tool that did not exist 20 years ago. And now it does. So that wasn't even part of the conversation when organic was being, uh, the word was being adopted by the federal government, but today it clearly is. So how do we, how do we do that? Absolutely. Yeah. Now with that, um, you mentioned the, the, the cover crop crimper and then the whole no-till system. Uh, talk about the role of no-till in the soil health aspect of that, because that's something you guys I mentioned that, you know, 2021 is the 40th anniversary of the farming systems trial, which did a lot of work into the whole no-till world. Right. Yeah, I'll step back just a little bit and talk about the context in which we develop these systems. And that is that we're asking farmers to change their focus. And not focus, you know, when you talk to a farmer, they'll say, oh, I produce, you know, I talk to my son, he's a dairy farmer. Mm -hmm. If you talk to somebody who raises potatoes, they're a potato farmer or an apple grower or a grape grower. And we say, no, we're all soil managers. You have to go back a little bit further in your mentality as you think and strategize around what it is you do. And you have to focus your energy on the soil. If you lose track of that and you focus only on the dairy or only on the apple, you, you've lost the connection. And it's, yeah. it's really about managing the soil and you're managing the soil for a very specific purpose. In our case, it's, you know, we're saying you're managing the soil to improve human health or you're managing the soil to improve climate health. Cause we like to talk about yes. climate climate as well, but you, you know, just focusing on human health. If you look at that, you say, okay, what am I going to do with the soil? I've got this, piece of land, whatever it is, if it's a quarter of an acre or it's 30,000 acres, this is the resource I have. What am I going to do with that to make people healthy? If yes. the best thing you can think of doing with that is spraying Roundup on it, you're not thinking clearly. You need to go back to the beginning and rethink that. Mm -hmm. If what you're saying, even as an organic farmer, is the best thing I can do with that land is till it annually. Every year, I'm going to turn it upside down, invert it with a moldboard plow, and then disc it, and then pack it, and then cultivate it and try to grow a crop. It's like you, you missed yeah. the boat. Yes, you have to grow a crop, of course, because... Yeah, you have to go back and think about what it is you're trying to do. Yes, we have to raise crops because people don't eat soil. Oh, if we did, it would be so much easier. You would go into the supermarket and say, oh, I'm going to take some of this compost and some of this rich organic soil. Nobody would say, oh, give me the stuff laced with Roundup. You yes. wouldn't do that. You wouldn't say, oh, look, give me that 2,4-D soil because that stuff's really a kick. Uh, you know, we just wouldn't do that. We'd all want the high organic quality soil. Yeah. So as farmers, that's what we're asking them to do. Now, as organic farmers, I mentioned, you know, I think organic farmers in general till the soil too much because they're not thinking about soil health. They're thinking about weed management. 
Mm, yes, you know I'm saying? guilty oh, of that, definitely. Yeah, my, my goal is to manage. I got to manage the weeds because if I don't manage the weeds, I won't be able to get my crop of tomatoes or corn or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is, string beans or squash. I, I got to get the weeds out. Yes, you do. That's true. But the weeds are there because you did something wrong earlier mm-hmm. on. And so how do we manage these systems differently? Uh, and there's challenges in place here. You know, if here in the East Coast where I live, our our topography, our landscape really wants to be 100 foot tall hardwood forest. Mm-hmm. That's what it was when the colonials, the colonies came here from Europe. They found tall forests. And they cut them down. They they got rid of a lot of that so they could grow annual crops. And that's what we did. If you go out to the prairie, it's tall grass prairie for the most part with, you know, big herds of bison that used to manage that for us. And, uh, you know, and some Native Americans that helped manage the bison. And it was a very nice ecosystem. We're not suggesting we go back to that, but we are suggesting that we have to pay attention to that. Because if we let our, you know, if we just focus on no-till, we're going to end up with a hundred foot tall hardwood forest because there's nothing we can do to stop that. If you look at what conventional farmers do as they uh, practice no-till and they're really smart and clever and, you know, ag engineers have come up with really great equipment to no-till seeds or transplants into the soil. And as organic farmers, we should be able to take advantage of that. Uh, Organic and regenerative organic should take advantage of any tool or technology that doesn't stop us from achieving our goal, which is making people healthy. Our goal is to make people healthy. The resource we're going to use is the soil. The, the mechanism in between is the food or the fiber that we produce. Uh, but our goal is really to have healthy people and we're starting with soil. So how do we marry those two together? Mm-hmm. That's the challenge that we face. And you don't do it by tilling the soil and you sure don't do it by spraying pesticides. Yet we have to do something to reset the biological succession clock, or we're going to end up with hardwood forests, which we don't eat trees, you know, yes. and we're all about feeding people and, and, uh, and animals, and most of them don't eat trees, and they don't eat all that tall prairie grass because we're not bison. So what do we do? Well, in the conventional side, we, we have to continuously hit that succession reset button by spraying more and more pesticides. So if you look at any farm that is continuous no-till, they are continuously changing and increasing the amount of chemistry that they spray. If you look at the organic sector, it's typically tillage. And so tillage gets a really uh, bad uh, marks. If you talk to NRCS or anybody that's involved mm. in soil management, they go, oh, you guys are tillers. We're no-till. It's like, well, you're doing the same thing. You, the, when we went to no-till, we didn't really stop erosion. It's still happening. You know, The Mississippi River still turns brown, mm-hmm. and it's not from all the organic farmers that are out there because there aren't that many of them. Exactly. So it's coming out of conventional farmland. Have we made some improvements? I'm sure we have. Have we stopped the erosion? No. Have we killed off the biology of the soil that can help us fight erosion? Yes, we have. So Mm -hmm. what we wanted to do here at Rodale and what my goal was, was to say, okay, how do we marry some of these technologies together? We know that we don't want to till the soil any more than we have to, but we're not willing to spray either. So we have to do something uh, or we're going to end up with trees. Uh, So how are we going to do this? And it didn't take long before, you know, you just look down the down the, across the field at the vegetable garden here at the institute or even in my own backyard and you look at that and you go wow how do we stop annual weeds from growing there oh we put mulches on the soil mm-hmm. i can mulch the that garden with grass clippings uh newspaper carpet squares i can throw a piece of plywood on the ground and annual weeds don't grow 
this little, you know, every now and then I see you have children every now and then, you know, when I had kids, you could yeah. see, literally see the light bulb come on over their head. It was like, I got it. Mm-hmm. Well, the light bulb came on to me and it said, okay, what we need to do is mulch the annual weeds out of our fields. But if I would suggest to a farmer in Nebraska who has 3000 acres that they go out and mulch their cornfield, yeah. now people in Nebraska are polite, so they might continue to listen to me, but they <laughs> won't do it. Uh, exactly. You know, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, but if we could grow that mulch right in place and then terminate it mechanically, mm-hmm. could we then create a biological system where we're mulching the field in place with very little work, in fact, less work than we do in the conventional system, still take advantage of satellite guided tractors and uh, GPS and, you know, uh, no-till planting equipment and high-tech seed monitors. All that's good. That's all Mm. perfect. We just don't want to spray the chemicals that go along with no-till. And instead, we're going to manage cover crops. So now we've planted cover crops, which keep the soil alive and healthy. We in the organic systems, we still typically will do a little bit of tillage uh, to get the cover crop established. And that's not great, but it's not real bad because typically on a, like on a grain operation, we'll do our tillages in the summer mm. when most of the macro life forms like earthworms are much deeper in the soil. Yes. We try to till as shallow as possible. And that's the time of the year when we will apply our compost or any soil amendments. So it's a little bit like saying, hey, guys, soil microbes, I'm a little sorry about this. I'm going to till you. Yeah, some of you are going to turn upside down and die in the sun. But here's some rich food. Replenish yourself. I'm going to seal the surface over and get a cover crop established immediately. Mm -hmm. And after that, I don't do any tillage for a few years. And so it's a little bit like taking 10 steps forward and one step back. Yes. Instead of taking one forward, one back, one forward, one back, or one forward, two back, one forward, yes. two back. I mean, that's so we're taking more steps forward than we are backwards, and we are showcasing how we can improve the health of our soil. You mentioned mm-hmm. our 40 year study, our farming systems trial. That's a great tool to look at these kinds of practices over a long period of time. You know, biology takes a lot of time to unfold. Uh, you know, you, you, have, you have a baby and if you raise, you know, most scientific experiments last two years. If you raise a child for two years and said, here's what they're going to look like when they're adults, oh, that wouldn't tell you anything. Well, the biology of the soil is the same. It takes time for these systems to unfold and to mature and to uh, the microbial populations to stabilize to the point where we really don't need to fertilize our fields very much. Yes, we need we need some nitrogen, but we can get that from the air that we breathe. You know, 78 yeah. percent of the air we breathe is nitrogen. Get the legumes in the cover crops, put it in the soil. Everything else is pretty much there. Uh, it just has to be mineralized and the biology of the system will mineralize that if you take care of the biology. So we start to change our focus. We're focused on soil biology, not on crops. Mm. To the point where our farm here at Rodeo Institute, you know, we have about 330 acres of land that we run our research farm on. Uh, we can almost plant any crop anywhere on this farm and it's going to grow just fine. We're not feeding the crop. We've already managed the soil. So the soil goes, hey, I'm here to go to work. You know, give mm-hmm. me something to grow. I'm, you know, we want to form a partnership with that plant and we want to grow it because that's what nature wants to do. The plant wants to grow. The soil wants to grow it. And we need to be good stewards of that resource and spraying and tilling are not the way to be good stewards. Okay. I've got so many questions now. 
<laughs> so when we actually, so my background is I spent a decade in upstate New York farming vegetables on mm-hmm. we have about 15 acres of vegetables and I managed about 45 acres of tillable land. And so we grew our own straw, which we then moved onto the soils because that far north, meaning the zone four, it was tough enough to get the soil warm enough when it was under cover. So we almost had to do some tillage so we could warm the soil up enough. Right. So talk to us about that aspect of, because like out here in Ohio now, um, we do a lot of cover crops and we also see like where the ground was tilled, the cover crop is twice as big as where we no tilled the cover crop into a previous cover. So uh, talk about, you know, that aspect of, um, I guess it's nitrogen we're probably looking for. And that's when the soil has been tilled, it's going to obviously do a big uh, explosion of nitrogen happening. Yeah. You know, tillage is not, tillage is not the enemy. It's, you know, I already said it was, but it's not really the enemy. It's, when we till and how we till. If you till every year to plant your cash crop as an organic farmer, you've sentenced yourself to multiple tillages, actually. Well, farmers, you know, and, and farmers always uh, talk about tillage in many different ways. Even people who say that they're conventional no-till farmers do some tillage. You yeah. know, they'll come in there with V rippers. Mm-hmm. They'll come in there with zone tillage or discs. And they go, well, I'm not tilling. It's like, well, it feels a lot like tillage to the earthworm you just cut in half, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so explain that to them. Um, so we all try to mitigate the, wor- the, the, the activity by changing the words a little bit. Mm. Um, but if you can change when you till the soil and how deep you till it and how you mitigate that process and how often you till, tillage can actually work in our favor. So you, you already identified one of those. You know, it, it's, when you till to get a cover crop established, it does much better than when you try to no-till it. Yeah. And, and that makes sense because most of the cover crops we're planting tend to be small seeded, you know, if you're, especially if you're doing legumes uh, and they spend some of their energy just trying to get established. Mm-hmm. And if you give them a really tough place to get established in that may have uh, some weeds already established, you know, is yeah. I, I, I was the oldest brother. So uh, I got to eat first, you know, my younger brothers, you know, still, they still say that, Oh, you always got this. Cause you were the old big brother gets to eat. There's a weed already established there and you stick a little seed in the ground. They're going to look at that and go, really? You yeah. think you're going to get yeah. any nutrients? You think you're going to get any water? I'm getting it first. If there's any left over, you get it. Uh, and so you're putting that little seed in a really challenging uh, situation. But you do a little bit of tillage, you plant that cover crop, it's going to take off and grow, and it's going to mitigate any impact that that tillage had. Okay. All right. So then with, and then like early, because one of the other things with no-till is uh, it, it's colder. You know, you see it with that, with that layer on top. Yeah. So mm-hmm. are you doing like zone tillage for some of like, I know like Steve Graf does a lot of pumpkins and no-till systems, and I want to get him on at some point. But um, is, is that kind of help with that or, or what are you seeing? You, yeah, sure. You can do zone. You can do different. Every farm's different. You know, I talked to one professor one time. He said, show me two farmers that are doing exactly the same thing. And I'll show you one who's doing it all wrong because we all have different resources and different yeah. expectations, different cropping sequences. And we're not suggesting that the roller crimper is the answer to everybody's problem. We're saying, you know, if you think about it as a manager of, of, of soil, even in colder climates, 
how can I make this work? If you say this is important to me, how can I fit it in? How can I create windows of uh -huh. opportunity in my crop rotation to make this work? No, it doesn't work for everything, but you know, I don't plant peppers till June 5th anyway. So uh -huh. I can use it on my peppers. I can't use it on my broccoli because I got to uh -huh. get the broccoli in, you know, 30 days, 60 days before that. That's uh -huh. not going to work. What cover crops can I use? You know, you know, if you're going to plant something in the summer, your late seeded broccoli, which you're going to plant in July, you know, uh -huh. or transplant perfect. in July. It's a perfect system yeah. for that. So gear up so that you've got a buckwheat. You're going to roll the buckwheat because you can grow buckwheat in, you know, 60 uh -huh. days. Uh -huh. And then I'm going to, I'm going to roll that. I didn't have to till for my broccoli. I could no-till the broccoli. That's second planting broccoli. First broccoli I did plant. We have people who plant sweet corn. They start off with tillage and they end up with no-till. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. So we, we, we get trapped in this thing that says, I'm a no-tiller and I never till. You know, Steve Groff will tell you that. I'm a no-tiller mm -hmm. and I never till the soil. You know, and I go, okay, but you spray pesticides and <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you yeah. got to do something because yeah. his farm's not a forest. So he's doing something and mm -hmm. he's spraying pesticides and we're not going to do that because we think that's bad for the soil microbial life. It's, mm -hmm. you know, he's saying, well, I'm managing uh, surface water and groundwater, you know, runoff and I don't want to have any runoff. And I understand that. And that's where timing of tillage mm -hmm. comes in. So if he, yes, yeah. if he tills his soil for pumpkins and cultivates them, he's going to lose soil like crazy. But if yeah. he would plant his cover crop in late summer and then in spring come in and roll it and no-till his pumpkins, that's not going to be a problem for him because we don't get here in Pennsylvania, at least we don't get real heavy storms in August. It hardly mm -hmm. rains at all. It's a perfect time to get those things established. You do some tillage in May and you know, you're, you're plowing and praying and you're hoping it doesn't rain before the crop gives it a little bit of cover because you're going to lose some soil and that's mm -hmm. not good. So it gives farmers another tool to put in their toolbox that allows them to think about soil health and say, here's a window of opportunity for me to use that tool. You know, I think, you know, particularly on a, a vegetable farm, as you described, a 15 acre vegetable farm, um, that's a little bit like, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a woodworker, a closet mm -hmm. woodworker. I'm not very mm -hmm. good at it. Uh, and, and if I, I, I just built a new shop last year and I yeah. put all my tools in there and it looks really, really nice. But really, that just makes me a guy with some nice tools. It doesn't make me a cabinet maker. Mm -hmm. You've got to learn that skill. But as a cabinet maker, I have many saws, many hammers, many chisels, many planes. If I'm a framer that's going to frame up a house, I got a nail gun and a chop saw. Mm. I'm still a woodworker, yeah. but it's a totally different. So when you look at conventional agriculture, it's the chop saw and, and the, the nail gun. And you're just sawing yes. and banging and you can do that. Small scale or, you know, I don't want to say 15 acres of small scale because, you know, three acres will kill a man. Uh, <laughs> you know, 15 acres of vegetables. You're that you're that artisanal person yeah. and, you're, and you're in touch with every piece of it and you need a lot of tools because mm -hmm. you're planting many different crops and a lot of diversity in your rotation but within that diversity you have windows of opportunity to get cover crops established so it's not i plant all my cover crops in august you might be planting a cover crop in may and then rolling it down in july and and putting your broccoli in or your, or your cauliflower or your cabbages yeah oh that's perfect why not it makes yeah. perfect sense to me. So even though you did some tillage in spring to get that brock, uh, I mean, that uh, buckwheat established, buckwheat germinates, I mean, practically germinates coming out of the planter. So, yes. you know, you're, you're not going to yeah. get any erosion from that. You're going to get it planted. It's going to jump up. It's going to cover the ground and you're going to go, sorry, guys, I know I told you, but now I covered you with something green and growing. And now I'm not going to do that again. So when spring rains come in June, the ground's covered. You're not worried about it. You didn't cultivate that broccoli or something. And 
And now you're going to roll that down for broccoli. So you have to think ahead. Where do I plant peas? When do I plant peas? Mm -hmm. I can do this with string beans. Maybe not my early first season string beans. Those I'm going to do a little tillage. But yeah. halfway through my succession bean planting, now I'm a no-till bean planter. Mm -hmm. We don't have to stereotype ourselves. We can be both a tiller and a no-tiller. So it's all about that constant improvement aspect of adding a little piece here every single year and just keep working at it. Because I think that's the, one of the things that I think- And, I, and, and yeah. focusing on soil health as yes. the driver. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to what's going to make my soil the best. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things I see, we see on the really small scales, people that come in and say, I'm going to do a half acre or an acre, and I'm just going to add three or four inches of compost to my farm. And that's what, that's going to solve all my problems. Do you see a problem with that? Do you see a problem with adding too much nutrients and too much organic matter? Well, I don't know if there's a problem with too much organic matter. There certainly can be a problem with too much nutrients. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we know that if you, for example, if you make compost with animal manures and you use compost as your primary source of nutrients, you're going to get off the chart with phosphorus. You yes. know, it's just going to, it. you're going to yeah. contaminate the soil with phosphorus. And why would you want to do that? Uh, you don't need to do that. So it's a balancing act. If, if somebody has enough compost to cover their farm three inches deep, they should sell some. Uh, you know, and if you're going out to buy it, uh, you're going to go broke. Uh, certainly on a garden scale, yes, you can do that. Uh, and if it's a hobby, you can make that work. If you're talking about a field scale, you know, you're 15 acres of vegetables yeah. and you had to bury that three inches deep in compost, you, you know, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of money. And like I said, if you had that much compost financially and biologically, you'd be better off bagging it and selling it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just focusing on more of a balanced soil than just dumping. A balanced soil that balances the idea, like here on our farm, of course, we, we make compost and mm -hmm. we use compost. But for us, compost is a soil amendment that is feeding the biology of the soil. So we're trying to feed that microbial life in the soil. We know that, I mentioned before, our soil mm -hmm. was hardwood forest. So the native, the background biology in our soil knows what to do with leaves. Mm -hmm. So we take leaves from municipalities, we make compost out of it, and we put it out on the field. I don't know what they do with it. It's a comp. It's not complicated, but it's complex. The yes. system is very complex microbiology, uh, but it's fairly simple. I just give it the food and go, you guys pick what you want to eat. It's a smorgasbord. You, you mm -hmm. eat this, you eat that. I don't care. Every, there's something there for everybody because leaves is what they're used to doing. And so I can build up microbial populations. I can improve the organic matter content. And then I partner that with legumes that'll grab nitrogen out of the air. And I can get a really nice balance of, of compost, legumes, covering the ground with something green and growing all the time, tying up that nitrogen if I have it after a crop with a grass like rye grass or, you know, mm -hmm. rye grain, I can put that in. That'll grab all the nutrients that might be floating around, keep them from leaching out of the system and save it for the next year's crop because I'm always thinking about how can I improve the health of my soil and feed that biological life? Because if I do that and do a good job of that, I can put almost anything in the ground and it's going to grow. Mm -hmm. Anything okay. I can grow around here. Yeah. Okay. So one thing you said there was that ryegrass is going to tie that back in. Mm -hmm. So what organic, uh, what organic matter level are you at on the farm? Obviously uh, the range. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, and it's, 
it's sort of two pronged. You know, I say to people, sometimes it doesn't really matter because not all organic matter is created equal. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. you know, we yeah. always say, we always say, you talk about carbon and everybody talks about carbon. Well, you know, this piece of paper is carbon. So am I, so is a diamond ring. Uh, there's only one C on the periodic table that we learned about in junior high school, but it comes in many, many different forms. Well, so mm-hmm. does organic matter in the soil. So we're looking at, at creating organic matter that is stored in very uh, durable forms and at greater depths. So I'm interested in getting organic matter content deeper in my soil profile because at once as it moves down the soil profile, it's less volatile and less likely to be uh, regurgitated uh-huh. back into the atmosphere. Yeah. So uh, I would say, you know, when you asked me a very specific question about organic matter content on this farm, when I started to, to managing this farm, we had, a, I think we averaged about 1.7 and now we're somewhere in the five and a half to six and a half percent range. We have some fields over seven, but, and, you know, and in the early days we did that primarily with tillage, you know, we mm. were tilling the soil and still improving soil health because we were mitigating that problem with, or the impact of that with cover crops crop rotations and uh, compost. Mm -hmm. So it's a process. Okay. Something else you said there, you were talking about how you can just like pretty much plant anything and it will grow. So you don't really have to add like the base nutrients, like the phosphorus, potassium, you do have to add some nitrogen that is done through soil health. Correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we're improving the health of the soil and, and we're, we're doing that across the board. So we, about uh, 10 years ago, uh, made the decision to bring livestock onto our farm here. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We didn't bring livestock onto the farm because we wanted a new uh, profit enterprise. We did it because I felt that our field, the, the organic matter in our fields was becoming stagnant. We had sort of plateaued. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. We had plateaued at that 5% range. And I, I, you know, I think, I think we can get to 10%, but uh-huh. I believe we need animals to do that. And so we need some permanent, not permanent, but long-term pastures. So every field on our farm now is a pasture and every field is a cropping field. So we've taken animals and we've improved our poorer ground. We've taken animals and improved our better ground. And, you know, we've, so we've been using animals to, to help us improve our organic matter. And, and they're just another crop that migrates through the field mm-hmm. and, and, and contributing their part to improving the health of the soil. We do the same thing with our hog operation. Uh, we use pigs to improve soil health. Pigs will ruin the soil or they can improve the soil. It all depends on how we manage them. So we manage our pigs very intensively uh, as pastured por- uh, po- pork and um, we're improving the health of the soil. We're, we're documenting that we can use pigs to improve the health of our soil. Likewise, yes. you could document that you can use pigs to destroy soil. They will do both. Uh, they're pigs. Yeah. And, and that's what they do. So, so it's incumbent upon us to manage them. So tillage can ruin the soil or it can improve the soil. Um, that's, same thing with animals. Yeah. Same thing with animals. Same thing with cover crops. Same thing with bad farm management. You know, bad yeah. farm management can, can degrade the soil, even in an organic system. So organic farmers don't get a pass uh, just because they're organic. I think they get a leg up because they're not spraying pesticides. So they've removed that mm-hmm. tool or that piece uh, of that's I- impeding them from progress. But unless you're doing something proactively, you, you have to do that in order to improve your healthier soil. Gotcha. Okay. So then the only inputs coming out of the farm, well, I mean, you still are probably some feed for the, the hogs and chickens. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Obviously we have to feed our hogs and chickens. So we, we do sell grain off the farm and we yes. sell our grain to the people who make the feed. I can't guarantee that all of the feed that's in my pigs came from this farm, 
but it went in because they yeah. can't they can't segregate it. But it's all certified organic, of course. Yeah. And, and so um, there is some feed that comes on for those that livestock. Yes. But it's feed that already went off or a similar. Yeah, I got you. So it's still a net carbon increase. Oh, over, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. We're taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it in the soil. Absolutely. All, all day, every day. Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. So let's go into the the tiller, the crimper, um, okay. the crimper a little bit. How did that idea come to mind? Well, uh, it was really by accident. We had a long-term project here called uh, uh, Low Input Reduced Tillage. Mm-hmm. So we were what we were doing is we were looking at organic systems and, you know, again, we know that in terms of soil health, we want to reduce tillage. So we, we moved from a moldboard plow to a chisel plow. We moved from a chisel plow to a disc. We moved from a disc to actually no tillage at all and trying to manage the system. And what we found was as we, as we tried over time to reduce tillage, we ended up with so much weed pressure that uh, we weren't able to grow crops as successfully as we, uh, as our counterparts or the other part of the rotations in the conventional system were doing them. So we said, well, that's not satisfactory. You can't tell a farmer to take half a yield. Uh, that's, they're going to go like, well, nice idea, but no, yeah, uh, that's not going to happen. And it, it wasn't until we sort of stumbled, I stumbled onto this idea that if you look at what conventional agriculture is doing, they're reducing tillage. When they stopped plowing, they started increasing herbicide use. Ah, okay. So they're doing something. They're proactively doing something to manage those weeds. In the organic systems that we were playing with here at Rodale, we weren't doing anything to manage the weeds and the, you know, the weeds were winning, you know, mm-hmm. praying mm-hmm. wasn't going to get it done for us. So um, uh, we had to sort of do something. If you're going to decrease one thing, you have to increase something else. Everybody says, say no to this, but you have to say yes to something else. So what is it that we're going to do? And uh, by accident, we had a, uh, a project here that was looking at multiple cover crops that were tilled in, and then we planted into these cover crops. I think there was 198 plots in this one field, and the ends of the field uh, happened to be in hairy vetch. And in the process of doing all the work in these research plots, we drove the tractor over the ends of the field so many times that it smashed it to bits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when we were planting these fields, uh, when you plant research plots, you can't stop right at the edge mm-hmm. of the plot. You drive a little past the plot. And so I drove into these squashed down vetch areas. And three weeks later, it looked like a mat of cardboard with corn coming out of it. And my neighbor came over and said, hey, I thought you were an organic farmer. And it's like, we were Odell. Of course, we're organic. He goes, well, you come up here and show, tell me that you didn't spray that. And we went up and looked at it. And there was this, literally, it was a dead mat of hairy vetch with corn coming out of it. And we just stood there and looked at it. I said, I didn't do anything. All I did was drove on it and planted. Yeah. He goes, that is amazing. He said, I couldn't do that with herbicide to make it look that clean and pretty. Yeah. Uh, it literally looked like brown with green coming out of it. It yeah. was just 
and you, when you lift it up, there was this nice thick mat of dead mulch. And I went, ah, the mulch is smothering the annual weeds. The large seeded corn had mm-hmm. only, it could, all I could do was rot or grow. Uh, most of the seeds that we eat as humans tend to be large seeded, not carrots or lettuce, but yeah. uh, most of the seeds are, are large seeded. Uh, and they only have one choice. They can germinate or they can rot. Nobody plants uh, soybeans and they don't germinate. And they said, oh, well, maybe 10 years from now they'll come up. Uh, you know, weeds can lay around for 10, 20 years, 50 mm-hmm. years and, and, and germinate and grow because they're very hard and small seeded. So the, the, we didn't stop any, we, we, we didn't kill any weeds. We just stopped them from expressing themselves in that particular year because they said the time's not right. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I don't have access to the sun or you know, I'm just going to lay here and I'll wait my turn. Uh, then I spent a few years trying to replicate that. Because mm-hmm. you looked at it and went, okay, biologically, this works. How do I do that? Because I can't tell a farmer to just drive all over your field. Just drive all over. I mean, your yeah. neighbors, neighbors would think that you are drinking or something because you're just out there in the middle of the day, just driving around, <laughs> pulling, pulling nothing, just driving all over it. Uh, that didn't make sense. And so I thought about building uh, like a roller. Well, first we tried off-the-shelf material tools that mm-hmm. were out there, uh, cul de packers, uh, other rolling tools that were out there, uh, rolling stock choppers. We tried all kinds of things, and nothing really seemed to work right. I wasn't happy with it, and so we decided to build our own tool that mm-hmm. was specifically designed designed to to do that. You know, usually when you try to use a tool, you know, you use a, a a spoon as a screwdriver, it doesn't work real well. Yeah, you yes. might be able to turn the screw, but it's not right. Um, or, you you know, maybe for Christmas, you get one of those one tool does all, and it's really one tool does nothing. Uh, yes. it's, it's better in the trunk of your car than nothing in an emergency, but it's not like it's your go-to tool yes. uh, for a particular job. So we wanted to make a tool that was right for that job. I wanted to put it on the front of the tractor so that the first tool that touches the cover crop isn't the tires of the tractor, but the, the roller mm-hmm. crimper itself. And that's what we did. And once we built it and put it on the front of the tractor, it freed up the back of the tractor for a planter or a transplanter. And suddenly the system worked. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I said, we played, I played around for probably 10 years till we came up with that. Uh, and it was a process. I'm not an ag engineer. You know, we, I literally asked my neighbor to help me build it. He has a great, better weld shop than me. And he's a much better welder and fabricator. And we took a a bike he's a Mennonite farmer and he had some bicycles there so we took a bicycle wheel and we mm-hmm. held it up against the front of the tractor and we said yeah that looks like like about the right size okay. you know if the, if the roller's this big people will think that you're pushing a little toy through the field and if it's four feet in diameter they'll think you're running a steamroller or something through the field yeah. that would look silly so the bicycle rim looked right we went to a salvage yard we found a piece of of uh, water pipe and I said that looks right and there were some four inch fins there we put that on there and boom we had a roller Uh Uh, we weren't sure how to build the fins because we knew you know mechanically if you put the fins in a straight line and you roll it you're you're going to have a fin on the ground fin in the air fin on the ground and that bounces yes and if that's bouncing on the front of the tractor you're literally going to feel that going through the field yeah Uh, your listeners can't see my head bobbing but you know you're (laughs) bouncing around and you're going to go well that's not going to be fun i don't want to do that and if it hits a rock it's not going to crimp that's right so um my thought my initial thought was uh we have to have the roller touching the ground all the time so it doesn't bounce and I don't know if you've ever seen people roll pasta with a pasta roller, a cutter. It looks like a rolling pin with blades on it, but they're spiral shaped. Okay. And if when you roll it, the rolling pin doesn't bounce or vibrate. It's sort of smoothly across the cutting board or the, or the counter. And you're left with these perfectly 
shaped strips. They're on an angle. They're not mm -hmm. straight, but they're on an angle, but they're nice rectangular strips. And you went, mm -hmm. wow, that's perfect. That's what I want to do. So we took our roller and in our mind, we sort of twisted the end. But in reality, what you did now is you made a screw mm. and you put the screw on the front of the tractor and here in Pennsylvania, we farm on hills. Well, yes. yeah, you're going to start screwing yourself down the hill. You know, the, the front of the tractor, you won't be able to hold it. Yeah. You, you'll yeah. be going straight, but the, the tractor is going to go crooked because uh, the screw is going to literally pull you down the hill or pull you up the hill. Pulling you up the hill is not bad because yeah. it helps fight gravity, but pulling down the hill. So we decided to make the spiral turn to the middle. And that's how we came up with the Chevron pattern. If people have seen our roller crimper, they know what mm -hmm. I'm talking about. It takes both ends, twists it to the middle. It makes fabrication a little challenging, not, but nothing insurmountable. And now there's uh, no bouncing. There is no drag up or down the hill. It's neutral. And unbeknownst to me, again, I'm not an ag engineer, but what we've actually done is we've multiplied the weight of that roller many times mm. the roller weighs about 200 pounds a foot by our design when we fill it with water we designed it so we could fill it with water but that weight is is just like uh you know uh, people talk about a woman with a high-heeled shoe and how many tons mm -hmm. of pressure are on that little heel yeah what we've done is we've taken we, yeah we've taken all of that weight and focused it on that one little piece of the blade that's actually touching the soil at any one point in time as it continuously moves across the field. So we magnified the weight with no vibration, no rolling, and we came up with a successful tool that actually works. So it allows farmers of any scale or size, you can pull it by mm -hmm. uh, a, a mule, you can put it on a BCS tractor, you can have a, it doesn't even have to be a roller, it can be a piece of plywood with a blade on and you can step on it. Uh, so it's scale neutral. It's the, really the biology that's working. So we said, okay, now we can take cover crops, grow them to sexual maturity, terminate them in the field, create all the biomass that we need to smother annual weeds using modern no-till planter technology. We can get the seed or the transplanter to get the transplants in the ground. And we as organic farmers or even conventional farmers, conventional farmers don't have to spray. Uh, organic farmers don't have to cultivate. And you have basically, particularly in a vegetable operation, you have a mud-free condition mm -hmm. to walk out there and pick tomatoes. Uh, it works and people go, wow, this is great. Uh, how do I do more of it? And so mm -hmm. we probably have as many conventional farmers using the system as organic farmers, because if you think about it, if you're a no-till conventional soybean farmer and you're going to plant soybeans and you're going to plant Roundup ready soybeans and you plant that and you don't need to spray Roundup, you just save some money. Mm -hmm. If you need to spray Roundup because you, your cover crop didn't do a good job or something, you can go in there and rescue that crop with your herbicide and you really lost nothing in the, in the process. At the same time, even though you're not uh, regenerative or organic, you are doing something to improve the health of the soil because you've got a cover crop out there through the winter and you're letting it grow to maturity or putting all that biomass back into the soil, or at least on the surface of the soil where the, the earthworms and microbes can kind of springtails can all come up and pull that down and, and put it to work for you. So you're making some improvement, maybe not as much as we'd like you to do, but mm -hmm. it's a step in the right direction. So uh, we're really excited about the adoption rate uh, you know, it never goes fast enough for those of us mm -hmm. who work in those systems, but we have millions of acres that are under a roller crimper technology now across the globe. And we've got, you know, you mentioned that uh, you were in New York state. Uh, we've got some uh, folks that have sent me, um, 
videos from uh, Norway where they're no-tilling in Norway uh, using oh, a wow. crimper, organic farmers. So people are finding innovative ways to use it. Uh, we had an orange grower in uh, Florida who said that they it helped them manage uh, the greening disease in their oranges uh, oh, wow. by, by rolling the alleyways between the oranges. So they were planting cover crops mm-hmm. between the rows in their, in their uh, orange grove and then rolling them with a the roller crimper to terminate them rather than mowing them takes a lot less horsepower oh, and, yeah. it was, and it was building up the, the health of their soil in between the rows of their their trees so that's just innovative ways uh, we don't grow oranges in yeah. uh, any of our research zones but uh, great opportunities yeah great so growers do you have a specific um mix that you like to use obviously it sounds like it works with any cover crop and there's so many different variations you can play with It'll work with any cover crop that is an annual or a winter annual. It mm-hmm. won't work with perennials. Uh, so, you know, you have somebody, you know, somebody will say, well, I planted alfalfa and I rolled it and it didn't die. Well, no, it's not yeah. going to. It's have alfalfa. you seen those tap roots? <laughs> yeah, right. It's a perennial. So you can't kill perennials. Or we have people who said, well, I've got thistles in my field. Can I roll them? Well, you can roll them. Yeah. And you can break the stalks, but you're not going to kill them. Yeah. So if you can't kill it by walking on it with golf shoes, you're not going to kill it with a roller crimper. It's not, it's not magic. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, the, the real challenge is timing the biology of the cover crop you choose to the cash crop that you want. Mm. So it depends when you're going to plant, plant your cash crop. Uh, you, so you sort of pick the time that you're going to plant your cash crop and then work backwards from there to find the cover crop that's going to satisfy your needs. Uh, so I don't have a specific mix that I use. I tend to plant single species cover crops that I'm going to roll because it's really difficult to time the flowering Mm -hmm. of these multi-species cover crop mixes so that you can roll them because you only get one chance to roll it. And what will happen is you'll say, well, some of it is already mature, but the rest didn't flower yet. Well, do you wait till that flowered? The stuff that flowered early has already set seed. Now you may have to deal with that. So you got to balance that out. Sometimes two or three species can work, you know, Mm -hmm. like oats and field peas work pretty well together. Mm -hmm. Um, Hairy vetch and rye can work well together because they flower in a similar time Mm -hmm. frame. But if you get some of these 10 mixes 10 species mixes uh, that can be a real challenge if you're going to use a roller to try to terminate Mm -hmm. them and and you you just sort of have to do some experimentation on your farm to find out within your weather patterns and your climate and your topography what's going to work for you because everybody has different rotation Um, what i suggest people do all the time is take um I like to use like three by five note cards mm-hmm. and write all of your, uh, the cash crops that you're going to plant in your rotation. Just write it on the note card and lay it out on the table in the rotation that you typically plant. And then start rearranging that so that you can create windows of opportunity for cover crops because you're going to say, well, now I want to use cover crops because I would like to roll to plant my broccoli. So how do I, if I move this, oh, now I have an opportunity to plant something here that I could roll for that broccoli. So you can move it around and it's really easy to do it on the kitchen table. Your kids can help you, your, mm-hmm. uh, your husband or wife can help you you can play with it over and over if you're clever you can do it on a computer i'm just not clever enough to like make all those boxes on a computer so i can play with it on note cards mm-hmm. um i even have a set that i made here for the farm that we went on the computer and i printed out little pictures of, of corn and soybeans mm-hmm. and hay and then i can picture out like well, where am i going to put the compost so i got a picture of compost i go i'm going to put it here well no yeah. it actually would work better over here oh that's great because I've put the compost there that allows me to do this over here. And you start yeah. playing with this and it's a creative game that you can play during the winter when it's snowing outside and you're tired of watching uh, television or listening to yeah. podcasts, you can uh, play with this on the table and, 
and save yourself a lot of time. And it's, it's a fun game to play and then try to create win as many windows of opportunity as possible to get cover crops in. So that's the, how you challenge yourself. You say, okay, here's my rotation. Uh, how can I create windows of opportunity for cover crops? Oh, I never yeah. thought about that before. Well, if I switch these two, there's a window or no, no, that didn't work. Uh, I'll try this over here because uh, you want to get cover crops in because I tell every farmer, you should be a soil manager and a cover crop farmer. Mm-hmm. Cash crops is what you have to do to make a living, but that's not your goal. That's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to improve soil health and cover crops are the cheapest, easiest tool you have to improve the health of your soil. How am I going to get them in there? Because mm-hmm. if all you're doing is saying, I get up in spring, I plow, I harvest, I go to bed. That's not going to do it. Mm-hmm. it that's just not going to make it. So mm-hmm. how can we be more in- inventive, more creative? And farmers that do this and farmers that are using the, the, the roller crimper technology and working with cover crops have almost all said, I can't think of one farmer that didn't say, farming has actually gotten fun again. It's really interesting. It's exciting. Uh, I'm learning new things. I'm experimenting. And yeah, it doesn't always work perfect or I have some failures, but I had failures before too. Mm-hmm. You know, I was on one farm and the farmer was talking, the neighbors were there. We had a little gathering and the one neighbor was complaining and saying, well, this doesn't doesn't look great over here. He goes, did you look at your field that you sprayed where all the escapes that you got from Roundup? He goes, yeah, that does look pretty bad. He goes, you can't even see the soybeans in there because you didn't, you know, now you have to put 4D yeah. in. He goes, yeah, you're right. Yeah. This doesn't look as bad as some of my fields that I sprayed. You're, we tend yeah. to think that spraying is perfect and it doesn't always work perfectly. Yeah. So we have to no. be open to some failures. Uh, I, I suggest every farmer and grower, every gardener should do a little experimentation every year. It keeps it exciting and interesting. It's not just drudgery or work. You know, there should be some innovativeness going on and excitement and trying some new things and it won't always all work. Um, you yeah. know, we, 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 we just talked about planting rye grain. You know, people say, oh, I tried rye and it didn't work. It's like, well, not all rye is the same. What variety did you use? Oh, there's a difference? Absolutely. So when we plant uh, a rustic rye here, that works great. If you plant a rustic rye in North Carolina, doesn't work at all. They want to plant a bruisey rye. Oh, mm. so they'll plant a bruisey rye. You might go to buy most rye. It says variety not stated, VNS. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't know what you're getting. So if you buy VNS uh, vetch, I've planted... I bought vetch from four different sources, planted them. The plant actually looks completely different. You can see the color of the green. You can see each block yeah. growing. It's yeah. not all the same. And yet it's all said, hairy vetch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's all different. You know, the same thing would be true with uh, uh, field peas or uh, Austrian winter peas. I've seen that with Austrian winter peas. Mm-hmm. You, get, you take a handful of seed, they're even different colors. And yet they all say Austrian winter peas. So you know, people have to play around a little bit uh, and be careful where you get your cover crop seed. You talked about Northern New York here in Pennsylvania. I bought some um, many years ago, I bought some hairy vetch seed, bought it from a seed broker. Most of the seed had been coming out of uh, Oregon or uh, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ran out of seed. I didn't know that, but they bought some hairy vetch seed, but it came out of Alabama. Well, that seed acted like they didn't know winter was coming. It just kept growing and growing, and growing right up till Christmas. Uh, you know, the snow came, the frost hit it, and in spring it was all dead. And when I called the seed company, they said, Oh, well, we got it from a southern climate. So just getting the seed from an acclimated climate. So now we make sure that all of our seed comes from, you know, Canada or somewhere north. And they think it's springtime here, you know, even in the dead yeah. winter. So getting the right seed or growing your own cover crop seed. If you find some that you like, you can do that. You can grow your own seed and save your own, especially on a small scale. That can work very well so that you always know that you have a seed that does well on your farm. Sort of like we used to do with open pollinated 
uh, varieties of corn uh -huh. or beans. You can do that with cover crop seed. It's all sort of open pollinated, so you can do that. Um, and then the other thing I think we need to do a lot more of, and I would challenge any of your listeners that are involved in research, is we've, we've done very little work on cover crop breeding. We are mm. pretty much taking off the shelf material. We don't do that with corn or tomatoes or watermelons. Mm -hmm. People want specific genetics for their uh, for their region. And we need to start challenging seed breeders to look at cover crops the same way they look at cash crops because mm. farmers will buy the seed. They will pay for the seed if yes. it does the job that they want it to do. So for example, one of the problems we have with hairy vetch is unless you time it really, really well, it can be hard to get hundred percent termination when you roll it. That's not a problem for the cash crop that you're planting typically, but if you have escaped seed and you plant wheat in your rotation, it has the same life cycle as wheat. It will germinate with the wheat. When you go to harvest it, you'll have wheat seeds with hairy vetch seed in. Uh, animal feed, not a problem. Animals will eat it, no issue. You take it to the flour mill and it turns white flour gray. Oh, well, nobody wants that. Uh, so you've got this nice white wheat flour and then you've got this vetch seed in it and it turns it gray and then the flour mill goes, uh, problems. We're not going to take that. So they will dock you for that. Um, but if you, if you were looking at a seed breeding program that would breed a vetch that was either earlier, easier to, to terminate, or even better yet, create a sterile hybrid, yes. you know, not most farmers don't save their seeds. So they're going to buy it every year. Anyway, we've created sterile hybrids and everything else. If it was sterile, you wouldn't care if there was seedling on the ground. It's sterile. <laughs> let yes. it go. Let it go. We can yeah. roll it. If the plant grows back, who cares? It's not aggressive when it gets hot. It's going to just disappear anyway. And it's sterile. Mm -hmm. I, th I think you'd sell so much of that seed, you wouldn't know what to do with it. But people aren't taking the risk to grow that. So I challenge people to think about cover crop breeding, just like we have cash crop breeding in the past, because mm -hmm. it's that important to the system. Yeah. One thing you said earlier is about the conventional fields and all the weeds. So we bought this new farm here in Ohio. Um, we got on in May. And so we did some tillage because it was coming out of conventional corn mm -hmm. and then the weed explosion. I mean, literally six months after or eight months after they sprayed the last herbicide, we had every single weed out. We had perennial weeds, <laughs> we had annual weeds. Um, uh, we even had weeds I hadn't heard of before, like a morning glory, no, a milkweed vine. I've never yeah. seen a milkweed vine before and it's nasty. Nasty, um, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, it was just fascinating to see that. And they had sprayed 11 different herbicides last year on that property, this property. Yeah. It's well, we had, we had a farmer next door to us here at Rodale and uh, they've got this really nice hundred acre field. Uh, and he said, he said to me, he said, over the last 50 years, we have sprayed everything but the kitchen sink. We just sprayed <laughs> the kitchen sink if they'd have ground it up, you know, because we killed. And he said, so what I'm going to do is the other year, he said, I'm just going to spray a border around the perimeter of the field to keep the neighbor's weeds, ours and others out of his field. Because he said, there's no weeds left here. Mm -hmm. Well, he said within within weeks, it was like, it looked like a golf course, it was solid green. Yeah. It was a carpet. He said, 50 years, we didn't do anything. I said, mm -hmm. no, all you're doing is suppressing that and burning things off that do germinate, but you're not, the weeds are there. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're just waiting for you to stop. And like you said, it was such a diversity. He was like, oh my God, now what do I spray? I don't know what to do in here. Uh, and they went in there of course, and cleaned it up with more yeah. sprays, but yeah, it's, it's a nightmare. It can be a nightmare. So where do we go from here? We've, uh, we've talked for the last hour, we've talked cover crops, we've talked roller crimpers, we've talked the, the success of your the systems moving into the organic systems. How do we get more farmers to change? Because as you said earlier, the 
um, Mississippi River still brown every spring. Yeah, uh, you know, there, clearly there's some barriers to adoption mm-hmm. of organic principles and practices. Some of them are cultural. Some of them are social. You know, for example, we know that uh, statistically we have six times as many farmers over the age of 65 as we have under the age of 35. Uh-huh. Okay, so if you're over the age of 65 and you've been uh, well capitalized into a particular system, there's not a lot of incentive to change. Uh-huh. Uh, but on the other side, the flip side of that coin is we know that over the next 20 years, Half of the land in this country, and most countries are in the same boat as us, over half the land is going to change management. Mm-hmm. Within that change, there's a huge opportunity. So we're very optimistic about the future and where organic is going. We're also very optimistic because the marketplace is growing and demanding more and more mm-hmm. across the spectrum. I don't care if it's uh, tomatoes or pet food. I mean, people want organic products and they want lots of it. So much to the point that uh, the majority of the products that are consumed in this country actually come from overseas because we've incentivized bad behavior in this country with crop insurance and many other principles that we have. So we're, yeah. Rodeo Institute is working on many fronts. For example, in the next farm bill, we are going to strongly suggest that anybody that transitions to organic or anybody that even plants cover crops, even if they're not organic, but they're taking steps in the right direction, thinking about soil health, that they get a discount on their crop insurance. Oh, we, wow. should be, we should begin discounting yeah. those tools that farmers have to pay for if we want to incentivize them to do something good. Because you can't incentivize somebody by saying, well, we give you equip dollars to plant cover crops. Well, yeah, you give me $15 an acre and it costs me 17 to do it. Well, yeah. why, why would I do it even at break even? I mean, I don't get up to work for break even. Who does? Oh, I got $100 for going to work, but I had to give it back when I left. I mean, nobody, yeah. would, nobody would show up and work for me if that was the case. So we can't ask farmers to do that. Uh, that's just not right. So we have to create incentive programs. The other thing we need to do is we have to create uh, consulting for farmers. Rodeo Institute now has a consulting arm. So we're willing to go to any farm in the country and consult with them and get them on board either for organic or regenerative organic, help them with the paperwork, help them with farming systems, help them with the agronomy, help them with weed management, create uh, a program and a system for them. Uh, Here in Pennsylvania, we worked with our Department of Agriculture and we can do that in Pennsylvania for free. Mm. So Pennsylvania State... Uh, created a farm bill. We think every state should have a farm bill. As part of that farm bill, transitioning to regenerative organic or organic is just a pillar for success, for financial success. We have a Republican legislature in Pennsylvania, but they saw the need not because it's organic and, oh, wow, it's because farmers that transition to organic are economically more stable. Okay. Who doesn't want to support that? Yes. They're saying, well, if consumers want it and farmers want to transition, we should support that because it's good for the soil. It's good for the farmer. It's good for the customer. Why wouldn't we do that? And so here in Pennsylvania, uh, we can put a ag consultant into any farm uh, at their kitchen table or their farm office for free. And then I think that's fantastic. We could do that across the country with very little dollars if we had state legislatures that would get on board. Uh, In spite of that, we can still operate across every state and we have a fee-for-service charge that we we do for that and we're we're moving in that direction. So consulting is another piece. Then what we need is we need to create partnerships with logistics organizations like Rodale has just entered a partnership with Cargill. Mm -hmm. And people say, oh, why is Rodale working with Cargill? Because they're so heavily entrenched in, in conventional Yes, but they have a lot of logistics. They've got the trucks, they've got the storage capacity, and they've got the mills that make the feed. So we partnered with Bell and Evans Poultry. So Mm -hmm. Bell and Evans Poultry says the 
what's holding them back from selling more organic chickens is not more farmers willing to raise them. It's not the hatchery. It's not the, the chicks that they have. It's the feed. They okay. cannot get enough organic feed. Uh, and so we said, well, let's partner with Cargill. Cargill makes their feed and Cargill is paying for the consulting on the farms that want to transition. So if you're oh, wow. a farmer and you've got at least uh, our minimum is we're saying you have to have 150 acres that you want to transition. We've got enough money to go to 50,000 acres. So if you've got 150 acres and you want to transition that to organic and supply organic grain to Bell and Evans, we will come and consult with you and work you through that program. And Cargill is paying the freight because Cargill needs the grain because their customer wants yes. it on the other end. So now we've created a customer that get, and we're offering long-term contracts. So they'll give you a five-year to 10-year, five to 10-year contract to help you through the transition process. They'll pay a premium if you're growing um, identity preserved uh, non-GMO crops and mm -hmm. you're within uh, rail distance from where it is they need to store those. Some farmers might be too far outside of that world yeah. and they can't actually do that. Uh, but most farmers will get a premium during the transition period. And then they'll have a contract and know that their crop is being sold at market price uh, for the next five to 10 years after that. So now when you go to the bank and say, I want to borrow money at, to go to the field, because most farmers are going to go to the field or already are going to the field with borrowed capital across yeah. this country. You have to convince the banker, the banker wants to see the market. So now you can say, I've got a buyer, I've got a shipper, uh, this trucks are going to pick it up, everything's lined up, I've got a consultant on board, I just need your money. Well, I've just greatly reduced the bank's risk. Absolutely. And yeah. banks hate risk, and I understand that. So we're, we're going to take on that risk in other forms. We take the risk away from the farmer, take it away from the banker, put it on the, the person selling the chickens and the guy doing the trucking. They're big boys. They, they're willing to do that. And now we've reduced those barriers. So you got a farmer who is turning uh -huh. 35 and taking over the, the home farm and they've got a few hundred or a few thousand acres that they want to farm in grain. Now we've given them the tools and reduced their incentives. So if you said, well, I've got 3000 acres, I'm going to do 150 with this Cargill program. Why not? It uh -huh. gives you a great opportunity to get your feet wet, uh, get started on that and maybe, and hopefully incentivize you to do much more of your land over time. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So, so breaking down those barriers, identifying the barriers, breaking them down. Uh, a lot of farmers, of course, uh, particularly in the grain world, are no-till farmers. And so by having this roller crimper and you being able to say, you can still use your planter, you're going to uh -huh. let your cover crops grow to maturity. And they go, well, I'm scared. It's like, I understand that it's new for you, but we have the tools, the technology and the resources to work with you through that process. And uh -huh. you got a buyer at the other end who's going to value your product. And what we found is that typically speaking, those farmers who are good managers in the conventional world make really good managers in the organic world. Those farmers who are not really the best managers of their, of their resources in conventional and are looking at the price premium for organic as their savior um, tend to not do as well. And that's unfortunate. It's, and that's yeah. a management question because moving to organic, you sort of step up the management. You're not going down. And yes. so if management is your weakness, then you're going you're gonna to showcase that rather quickly. Yeah, it's a lot more balls to keep in the air, as it were, with the green That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. All right. One, one selfish question here. Um, with a pH, do you guys do anything? Do you try to bring the pH up to like a 6.5 when you come into a farm? Do you try to bring it down or do you let more of the uh, biology take care of that? We try to let the biology take care of that. Now, if things are out of 
out of kilter really drastically mm -hmm. because of uh, historical farm practices, we may have to come in and, and use lime or, or something to get the pH yeah. uh, respectable. Now, we never target seven for the pH. You know, the reason that most agricultural systems say seven, uh, that's because herbicides are designed to work at a pH of seven. If, oh. if, if you get a pH of, of 6.2 and you've got weed breakthrough in your herbicide and you call the salesman, they're going to come out, they're going to sample the soil pH. They're going to go, well, <laughs> it's not our fault. It's your fault. Uh -huh. But if your pH is at seven, that removes that barrier because they, they've, because they've designed herbicides to work on every acre of land all around the world, They've had to get some kind of uniform standard and they've come up with pH of seven, said make your pH seven, and then the herbicide works really well. Anything outside of that, either plus or minus too far, uh, you know, 6.8, yeah, 7.2, just fine. Yeah, yeah. You get down to six or you get up at eight, they're going to go, yeah. it's not going to work so well there because it wasn't designed to work at that pH. Mm -hmm. Do you have experience with high pH and bringing them down, like an 8.4 that I see out in like some of the Western states? Uh, I personally do not, but you know, we've, we, our consulting team has, our mm -hmm. science team has. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that's always been stumping me. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jeff. I know you're a very busy person. What, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, of course, uh, you know, any, any uh, search engine that you choose to use and type in Rodale Institute, you're going to come right to our website, but www.rodaleinstitute.org. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a wealth of knowledge. We have a very dynamic website there. We have uh, online courses now. We have our, a virtual campus that we created. So we know that some people can come to visit our facilities either here or at any one of our outlying stations. We have one in Georgia, one in California, one in Iowa. Uh, they can go there and see what's happening. Uh, we know not everybody can do that or has the mm -hmm. time to do that. So we have some really dynamic uh, classes online that you can take. We have our latest one is uh, a transition to organic course mm -hmm. that's online. And it's it's really, really amazing. Uh, best of anything that we've done. Uh, there is a fee for that course, but it's, it's modest given what you're going to get out of it. And uh, I think it takes like 20 hours to go through the entire class. Oh, wow. So it's a, it's a well-designed, filled with a lot of external uh, voices that we've brought in as guests, presenters, and speakers. And uh, yeah, I would suggest anybody go online and take that, take that class. Okay. It, it'll, it'll be money well spent. Yeah. Absolutely. You'll learn a lot. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Uh, only to say that, you know, no matter where people are on the, the spectrum, whether they're consumers, gardeners, or farmers, there's a role to play. The, 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 uh, the opportunities are tremendous. Whether you're doing podcasts or you're a journalist, there's a place for your skill set in the organic community and in this transition world. And together, we can make a huge difference on people's health and the health of the planet. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. It's certainly my pleasure to be with you. I enjoyed every minute of it. All right. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Next week on the podcast, I interview Kate and Grant Estrade, and they are with Laughing Buddha Nursery down outside of Louis in Louisiana, outside of New Orleans. And we chat about how they started off as a nursery and then built their own regenerative pasture-based farm and now have a thriving business down there and even sell vermicompost. So uh, join me next week. We will chat with Grant and Kate. So there you have it, another episode in the books. 
So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.